We are going to be in Acts 17 this morning, and it's like this epic, epic passage. This is the pinnacle moment of what we have of Paul, not Ricardo's, Paul's recorded sermons. Um, wouldn't it be great if Paul's name was Ricardo? I'd be charmed. Um, anyway, this is like the longest sermon that we have that's recorded of Paul. And so this is an epic moment in the book of Acts. It's an incredible moment for the history of the church. And before we get into Acts 17, there's two things we need to address. Uh, one, this text deals with common grace. And we don't have nearly enough time to go into that incredible doctrine. And also, Cameron was epic in explaining it to us in Acts 14, like five weeks ago. So if you're curious about common grace and you wanna hear more about it, uh, you're not gonna hear about it too much from me, uh, but you can go on the website and listen to Cameron, run through it. Sound good? Um, it's Sunday. What else are you going to do? Listen to sermons, read your Bible, pray, right? Hang out. Uh, two, um, and I wasn't aware of this, and I find it really confusing, but apparently throughout church history and more kind of into the modern era, uh, last 500 years or so, um, there's been a contingent of people who think this is a total failure. Isn't that weird? I, th I thought it was weird, because uh, I read it, and I'm like, that's like so brilliant. Um, but yeah, so many of you have been raised in the church or have been ch around church for long enough to have heard that Paul blew it here. He was speaking to the intellect, didn't mention Jesus by name, didn't even talk about the cross, and like that's why he only got three converts. And I just want to like take that off the table right away. One... This is brilliant. It's infused with the gospel. Uh, you can see that Luke says that the content of his message is Jesus and the resurrection. When you look in uh, verse 18, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So we know that it would be really awful or awkward to talk about a resurrection of somebody that never died. It would be weird to talk about a guy who died without mentioning the method. It's highly probable uh, two, it seems odd that Paul would only speak for two minutes when later on we read that he speaks so long that somebody falls asleep and falls to their death and he has to revive them. Um, it's highly doubtful that this is the exhaustive sermon. It's more likely that uh, Luke is preserving, as was common in the day, the rough outline and the content, uh, but not the exhaustive message. So, uh, also, not only is Paul faithful, not only does Paul preach the gospel, but he is successful, just not by American standards. He has a few converts, and uh, one of them, Dionysius, uh, is a member of the Areopagus, which uh, we're going to talk about a little bit later, but getting one out of 30 of this crew is incredible. Um, that's an accomplishment. Okay, so go listen to Cameron on Common Grace. And this is not a failure. Headline, right? Uh, we're going to read in uh, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now, aside, dear audience, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this is Luke's introduction to uh, Paul's sermon. And what you need to know about Athens, and most of you do, or many of you do, depending on how well you paid attention in middle school and high school, is that Athens is the epicenter of intellectual and cultural, uh, the intellectual and cultural world at this time. This is where all the best stuff comes out of. This is where all the best thought comes from. This is where culture is made, culture is judged. This is the center of the Roman world. Uh, but it's like four or 500 years past its prime. Still the epicenter, but it's been about four or 500 years since it was like also the power center. Uh, it's declined a little bit. It's kind of like post-glory um, in that there's only about 5,000 voting citizens in this town. And have you ever been to Athens? Yeah, so it's like, it's kind of an epic place, right? It's beautiful. It's full of these incredible buildings. Uh, it's a little overwhelming, um, but there's only like 5,000 citizens. And sure, you get tourists, uh, but as far as like the people that live there, it's, it's definitely post-glory. Uh, it's also full of idols, as Luke notes. Um, and uh, the... Um, the saying from Petronius at the time was that it was easier to find a god in the city than a man. Uh, there, there were more idols than men in the city. And, and so Paul is walking throughout and obviously seeing a lot of these, these idols. Uh, the other thing that we need to remember is that Paul is alone and he's just come off of probably a pretty devastating incident in Berea. Uh, you guys remember last week where Paul is preaching with his team. And remember, Paul is always, always, always a part of a ministry team. He doesn't do ministry alone. He's not the individualist of post-modern America. Uh, he's got Timothy and Silas and... Thessalonians come to Berea where he's having some success, stir up the crowd, and it gets so dangerous that they've got to ship him off to Athens. And so Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, and some people accompany him to Athens, drop him off, and go back. I don't know about you, for me, I would feel a little bit discouraged. Uh, having an effective ministry, and all of a sudden, these interlopers come in, and I have to flee for my life. Um, and, and knowing Paul, like, that's not his style. You know, he, he's totally content to preach the gospel in the face of danger. And so this is the setting for, for Athens. He's alone when he normally would be with others. He's in a city that's full of idolatry and in decline. And we read that he's greatly distressed. Um, when we read greatly distressed, I want us to put uh, like epileptic fit or full-blown anxiety attack in there. This is the kind of 
emotional word that's going on. This is the experience that he's having. It's sustained, it's troubling, and it's only used one other time in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's used all over the place uh, of Yahweh uh, because he had saved a, a people who were unfaithful and their prostitution to idols was so deeply troubling that this is, was his like common experience. So in Exodus 32, where Israel is worshiping a golden calf, God is experiencing this deep anxiety, this deep troubling emotion, sustained and concentrated. When they prostitute themselves to the Baal of Peor, this demon god, Yahweh is feeling this deep, deep sense of anxiety and, um, and like trouble in his soul. And so Paul is feeling the same thing. Luke is saying this is exactly what it was like. And uh, Paul is Luke's source. And so Paul's like, yeah, this is what was going on And as I was looking around. And I want to just take a, a quick pause for a sec. Um, Portland is a cultural hub. Maybe not like the epicenter of the world, um, but we do have magazines about us in Japan, so there's that. Uh, we do have salt and straws showing up in like Venice Beach, I think. Um, we are exporting our culture, our ideas. And, and so this is a cultural hub, and, uh, and I walk around it, and I don't, I don't find myself feeling like this. I wonder if you do. When you walk around our city, when you drive around our city, uh, I'll throw myself under the bus a little bit, uh, um, on um, Killingsworth, on the way out to the airport, there is a, a strip club called, I think, The Pleasure of Real. And it's a terrible name. It's like somebody forgot grammatic structure. Uh, but I laugh about it. I'm not troubled by it. In fact, like, and this was so deeply convicting, uh, when I'm preparing this sermon this week, uh, I realize like, I'm actually never troubled by it. As I drive by it every single time, I make a joke. I make light of it. And this is a place where people are pursuing something that they think will make them whole, that will, will give them significance in their life, that will satisfy some deep desire. And, and our city is full of them. Our city is full of places of worship. Places where people think that this person can satisfy the deepest longing in my life, will bring significance in my life. This thing, if I just pursue it. And Portland's not alone. Uh, I mean, you look at people that we admire. Uh, who seem to have it all, who seem to have everything that we want, and they're not satisfied. Uh, it was deeply troubling uh, for me personally because of, <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous that I'm getting emotional about this, but the emotional impact of Anthony Bourdain's suicide. This was a person who, like, kind of became an idol for me when I was like 19, 20, living on the streets and needed somebody to look up to. And I fantasized about all the places he was eating uh, when I couldn't afford a burger. Uh, this is a man who had it all. 
as far as worldly standards go. Kate Spade, you know? I mean, how many people do we look up to who, who tell us through their choices, this is not it? How, how many people, like in our world, consistently communicate, once you attain the thing that you think will give you meaning and significance and satisfaction in your life, you find that it's vapid, it's fleeting. Uh, and just as an aside, if um, I mean our, the the suicide rate in in our world is is pretty astonishing. Chances are somebody here is thinking about it, and if you are, talk to me after the service. Like we'll we'll get coffee. There is hope. Um, whatever is going on, I I'm happy to meet with you. Uh, when you drive around our city, what is your emotional response to the idolatry of Portland? Do you resonate with God? Are you oblivious? And I think this is a hindrance to our witness. Our inability to, to not only see spiritually what's going on, but to even muster emotion for it. See, if, if we're going to be effective witnesses in Portland, we must be indignant. When we see injustice, we must be indignant over it. When we see sin, when we see people giving themselves over to things that like, just only bring death, we must be furious. But if all we have is anger and fury and righteous passion... Uh, we're going to blow people out of the water and convince them that uh, culture is right and Christians are just about hate. And they don't have fun. Um, see, see, a right passion for God will always bring indignation over sin. But a right passion for God will always bring compassion for others because we will care about what he cares about. And so there are people that are trapped in patterns of sin that are killing themselves, and we recognize that, like, yes, they're part of the system, they're part of the problem, but they are not the problem. And God is pursuing them, and he might be using us to intervene. Your sphere of influence uh, may need you to be a little more indignant. And... And Paul doesn't just muster this up. This isn't something like he enters into a cultural center. He's like, oh, man, I, I've got a job to do, and I better, like, I better figure something out. How do I work this out? Uh, uh, idolatry. There it is. And then, um, and then move forward into his sermon. This comes from a deep character. This comes from little things consistently over time. And so if you're at a place where you're like, yeah, I'm actually not indignant, I'm pretty jaded by the state of the city and the injustices here, uh, today's the day to start. Build character. Pursue God. Uh, when I first took up the guitar, I was content to make dive bob sounds with a distortion pedal to make my guitar sound like a motorcycle and, uh, and feedback. Like Those were the things that I knew how to do. Noises, and it was really fun until uh, a guy from Chico, of all places, whoever was just down in Chico, um, uh, 
Martin from Chico was like, yeah, but can you play any songs? Well, I mean, not really. Um, and so it was a little embarrassing. And, you know, you can't just, like, whip a song together if you don't really know how to play songs. You don't really understand the structure. Uh, you know, I could put feedback and guitar motorcycle sounds together. And it was like, yeah, that's not a verse-chorus verse. Uh, and so he really embarrassed me, and he embarrassed me in front of a bunch of people. And I decided never again. I'll never be embarrassed over my musical inability ever again. And so I went out, bought a fake book, went through it. The fake book has like the basic outline for a bunch of songs and, you know, 1,001 songs and some of them are great, like, you know, Manic Depression and Machine Gun by uh, Jimi Hendrix and some of them are awful, like Elton John and, you know, James Taylor. No offense. <laughs> never again will I be embarrassed over my musical taste. Um, anyway, so I learned all these songs next summer, come back, Martin's like, so, do you know any songs? And, you know, um, I figured out, like, some of the melodies and chord structures and things, and I could, like, play through some Nirvana and some Jimi Hendrix, and it was great. And, um, and I was, over time, developing vocabulary and practices that built to a readiness uh, to play music with other people, to be in bands. You know, I was, like, 11, and by the time I was 14, I started my first band that was awful, called Binky, sorry Matt Stark. Um, and that's, that's what we're talking about here. It's like those little choices, day in, day out, not to be fascinated with the shiny motorcycle sounds and the feedback, but like to build a passion for God that yields an indignation over sin and a compassion for other people. Um, one, of, one of the things that was exciting uh, initially about being a musician, well, I, maybe I use that term loosely, I don't know if I was ever a musician, but playing music and being a recording artist was when you get together with other musicians, there's this game we play. And it doesn't have a name, but it goes a little bit like this. Somebody puts a record on, and you're like, oh, Nirvana, they stole that from the Melvins. And then it's, oh, the Melvins, they stole that actually from the Cars. And, oh, that melody that, you know, um, Bob Dylan is singing, oh, he stole that from Dave Van Ronk. And you, basically it's a, a competition to see who can guess, or not guess, but notice all of the melodies and where they've been stolen from and the chord structures and where those have been stolen from and the drum fills and who they stole that from and the influences and all this kind of stuff. You become like really adept at hearing and noticing the way that everything's put together and who's stealing from whom. Awesome game, super fun. Um, and, and that's what, this actually does have a point. Uh, that's what Paul's doing. Paul has uh, what most people call gospel fluency. As he is invited to the Areopagus uh, in front of the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, he sees how the melody of the Stoics, that we are all children of God, fits into the true song of the gospel. That, yeah, we are, but we don't hold within ourselves a divine spark. We're made in God's image. And he pulls from the Epicureans that God is all-powerful and creator, and he puts it in the gospel song. And he's like, this is where this fits. Yeah, God is all-powerful and all-creative, all, 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 powerful and all creative, 
Uh, but he's not distant. He's not far away. Uh, Paul has developed a character, not only that allows him to see sin and love other people, but to assimilate culture in such a way that he's able to communicate effectively and intelligently in the, the highest point of, of the intellectual world at the time. Um, the, the Epicureans are essentially materialist deists. Uh, they think that God is distant, uninvolved in his creation. We can't really know much about him, so why bother? All we know is that he's happy on Mount Olympus, he's eating ambrosia, and he's unconcerned with anything else. And so we should be like that, unconcerned by everything else. We'll just kind of do our thing, avoid pain, look for pleasure, and uh, try not to get in the way of anybody else. That's the Epicureans. And the Stoics, uh, it's a little bit more of a popular religion, and they're, they're more of a pantheist thing. God is in everyone, you know, we're children of God, and so he's within us literally as a divine spark. The Stoics believe in the universal brotherhood and kinship of man, and they, uh, they also kind of think that I don't know, it's hard to really know God. He must be distant. Um, but we think he's active in directing history. And so the best thing you can do is figure out what you're supposed to be. If you're like a pig farmer, then you should be the best pig farmer you can be. If you're a super wealthy diplomat, you should be the best wealthy diplomat you can be. Uh, but you shouldn't try and change positions. And also, like, both of them really didn't believe in much after death. Epicureans, you're dead, you're dead. The Stoics, the best it got was your soul kind of like pitters out. You know, it just, it doesn't last much after death. You've got it, but, you know, not for long. So these are the people that Paul's talking to. This is their philosophy. And, and it's brilliant what he does. Um, well, here, let's, let's read about it. In verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So, so far, so good. The Athenians say, uh, we don't want to miss anybody, you know. There might be a God out there we're not sure of. Uh, it's possible even that this was a demolished idol that was so old that when they re, uh, rebuilt it, they couldn't read the plaque, and so they're like, well, it's, it's somebody. Uh, and Paul says, hey, the thing that you admit that you're ignorant of, well, I actually know a little bit about. Let me enlighten you. They've invited him into this council. They've invited him to share, and he's taking full advantage. And everything he said up to the point of uh, verse 25, they agree with. God made the world. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Doesn't live in temples. In fact, both groups thought it was ridiculous and superstitious to worship a God you couldn't really know. It was important to have those idols to acknowledge uh, but it was superstitious to really do much more than the obligatory sacrifice every so often. 
So Paul continues in verse 25. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of human, or by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is Paul's sermon. This is his interaction with the Athenian culture. And he does some amazing things. He doesn't quote the Bible at all, uh, or at least not overtly. He, let me see if I can find that. There it is. He, in fact, takes his entire structure from Plato's Apology of Socrates. It's, it's like, it's a little point move. Hey, I'd, I'd like to win some points with you. Here is one of your famous uh, narrators giving an apology for one of your famous philosophers, and I'm just going to take his entire structure, and I'll use that as my argument. Uh, it's artful. He takes all of their vocabulary. Uh, the, the vocabulary that Paul is using is almost entirely uh, from the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. He takes their ideas that God is creator, he's Lord of heaven, he shouldn't be served by humans, uh, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He um, uh, is looking for people to find him uh, is the point of departure. But up until these moments, Paul is essentially speaking fluently in an Athenian philosophical language. But here's the thing. He is so adept at finding that melody and placing it in its proper place. Uh, he doesn't need to quote scripture, although scripture is all over the place. And you can go back through this and, and find it, but here are some high points. Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, God as creator. Isaiah 42, verse 5, that he gives us life and breath. Psalm 50, 9 through 12, he has no need of sacrifice. Isaiah 40, he doesn't dwell in temples, but is near to humans. Psalm 9, we take our refuge in him rather than him in, in our buildings. Psalm 96, he judged the world in righteousness and with equity in Psalm 98. Paul's developed this character, he's developed this knowledge, he's developed this heart, and it just flows out through him because he can pick out those little melodies and put them all right together into their proper place. And the punchline is the resurrection. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection, he gets down 
to verse 30 uh, and says it's time for repentance. Before God revealed himself through Jesus, he was patient. But that time is over. You, you think that God is far off and distant, but he's been pursuing you this whole time. He's been after you. And now he's done something definitive. He's done something concrete in becoming a man. He's become tangible. He's pursued you to the point of becoming like you. And so the time for ignorance is gone. Repent. Now, he doesn't say stop worshiping idols. He doesn't say stop doing a bunch of the other like really nasty stuff that the Athenians were known for at the time. He just says repent. What's that about? Repentance is not a change of behavior. I think, I know, there's a lot of you that need to hear that. Repentance is not a change of behavior. Certainly that comes after. That's an outgrowth of repentance. But repentance is primarily a change in direction. And if you, I mean, we say that all the time, but if you haven't heard that, you need to hear it. The Athenians are depicted as stumbling around in the dark, groping, just hoping to find this deity, this unknown deity. They're depicted as turned away from the light. And Paul says, turn around. D.L. Moody said, the only thing that stands between you and your God is not your sin, but it is your will. You love your sin too much to give it up, and so you won't turn around and face him. But we are assured by Jesus that once we turn around, all of that is forgiven. We haven't done anything. It's just forgiven. So Paul says the time for repentance has come because... He has set a day when he will judge the world with judgment by the man he has appointed, and the proof is the resurrection. This is the proof. Now, what's that the proof of? Is it just proof that Jesus is, I mean, is Jesus just merely the God-man? God incarnate, come down, offer sacrifice, go back up, hang out. I mean, we all know this. We all know that that's not true. Why do we live like that? Why do we live like we don't have the presence of the Lord who created the universe with us now? He is present now. He is in you, not as a divine spark, but as a person, as a spirit, the spirit, personal. The resurrection doesn't just guarantee that Jesus is who he says he was and that he gets to do what he says he's going to do. The resurrection is the first act of God's new creation, of making all things new. And you, you door of hope, you church, are his family and his community and an outpost of that new creation in the city of Portland. So, when you are out and witnessing 
in book clubs, at church in the park, in whatever sphere of influence you have, you are not only declaring the death and resurrection of a God who is near and determined to touch his creation, but you are announcing the new creation that starts now. The old has passed away. Certainly there's a future hope. It's not like everything's hunky-dory and we're just kind of blowing it. Uh, we still live between the times. But God has created his renewal, uh, or guaranteed his renewal, and begun it now. And this is what gives Jesus the ability to judge. That we will be judged by righteousness and equity. And not based on, on what we do, but on who we are related to. To me, the, the amazing part is, is the response. 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So success, numerically, like not massive, but success. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So more than a few. Uh, think about the entire world, the most cultured and intelligent people you can possibly think of. And now pick the top 30 and now put them on the top of the Areopagus, Mars Hill. These are the people that Paul is speaking to. Did, did, did Beyonce make the list? Anybody? I know Ashley Bell. Yeah? Close? Twice. Oh, man. Um, no, the like, most intelligent people our, our world can produce currently, uh, which, I mean, in secular culture, I mean, man, Christopher Hitchens, really kind of poisonous uh, towards the gospel. But he was brilliant. I'd put him on, on the top of the hill. Can you imagine Christopher Hitchens saying, actually, that song makes sense now. Like this music I've been playing the whole time. I couldn't figure out why it didn't resonate. And, and Paul is like, here's, here's how this all fits together. In, in our world, like we... we face a different kind of philosophy. It's got a lot in common. Kind of that like materialism, the agnosticism, the deism, like maybe there's a God, but he doesn't really like have much to do with me in my daily life. But what has become increasingly common is to hear from people that they're spiritual but not religious, that they're looking for the transcendent, and they're pretty sure it's out there. Certainly this, this has something to do with age group, uh, depending on who you're talking to and what they grew up in. But overall, this is kind of the spirit of our city. There's not a God, but there's something out there. And, and I'm looking for it, I'm groping around. I hope to find it. I think it'll give meaning to my life. I think it accounts for my experience. 
I think if I get a lot of it, I'll be satisfied. And what we need to do is cultivate the kind of character that is not only familiar with scripture, but also familiar with culture, where we're, we're capable of noticing those little melody lines and saying, that, that's true. I mean, all humans are worshipers. We all worship something. We all have our belief systems. Even like the staunch atheist, he's got his martyrs. He's got his religious practices. He's got the things that like give meaning to his life. All people are religious. All people are worshipers. Can you, can you pick out that melody and put it in its proper place for them? Because if, if you haven't noticed, people are dying without Jesus. In our world, like, they're walking around. They're alive, but they're dead. People are giving themselves to things that can't bring life, that, that won't satisfy, that only damage the soul. And, and we have the word of life. We are the message of good news to that world. How will we cultivate it? Will we be able to speak into those moments? Our world is lost and groping for a God that has been pursuing them from the beginning. He's not far off. He's not hiding himself, but he wants to be found. And, and now he makes himself known through his son, and we carry that message. So let's grow in grace and truth and character, and especially this summer. We're, we're going to be out and about. Like This is when the city comes alive. Everybody's hiding in their basements all, all year until the sun comes out. Sweet. I love basements. Uh, but summer, like, it brings people out. And, yeah. Amen to that. Um, people come out. Like, we're having these interactions with people. And maybe, like, through the grocery line isn't the best moment to say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Like, that could be a little weird. But there are, like, levels of evangelism, right? You know, there's no zero. The, the evangelism off zero moment doesn't exist for the Christian. Like that, there's no such thing as a zero moment. At the very base, we need to be out and about, eyes up, looking for those, uh, those idols in the culture. I mean, if you, wanna, if you wanna know what the trends are in your industry, look for what people worship. Look for what they're worshiping underneath. But, but this summer, we need to be looking, we need to be listening. So at the very least, we can invite people into the kind of relationship where there's a spiritual conversation. What do you believe? Oh, you believe in nothing. Well, how's, how's that going for you? And like, what brings meaning to your life? Asking good questions is just like relationship 101. Ask good questions. If there's an opportunity, hey, we'd like to invite you to our house to like tell us about yourself or up to the you know, Mount Tabor or you know, pick your place. There's the invitation. Oh, tell me more. What do you believe? Then we kick it up, like stage two. 
you know, sharing a little bit about what you believe, what your experience in life has been. Like, not everything has to start at level 10, where it's like, here's the full gospel, repent, believe, be baptized. Sometimes that's super appropriate. We should do that. We should probably do it more often than we do. But, but for sure, like level one is where we need to start this summer if we're not starting anywhere. Um, if you don't know Jesus, he is calling you to himself right now. And we're going to hold baptisms in two weeks. Today's the day of salvation. Like, make a response to him. He has turned towards you. Just turn around. He will take you as you are. You don't need to, like, stop anything you're doing and make yourself right to be in relationship with him. Amen. You. Like, he will take you as you are. No, and if you, if you want to follow Jesus, like, do it. Like, come down here at the front when we're praying. I'll pray with you. Uh, we'll tell your friends. It'll be rad. And then we'll get you baptized in a couple weeks. If you do know Jesus and you've forgotten that he's with you, that Matthew 28 is not just a part of Scripture, but it's a truth that's a part of our life, that we're called to make disciples. And by the way, he is with us. In, in Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit is, is with us when we witness. Now, be confident. Let's be the kind of church that is actually spreading the aroma of Christ. Amen?